Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove. This is a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets and showings and other cool ways to support the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. Things work the same everywhere. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I always fancied idiots. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. If I want to lay you in bed all day, I will. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And we're very splad, very splad, very glad <laughs> to be joined by a special guest. That's where those syllables came from. Nick Cooey is joining behind the mic. Thank you very much for being here, Nick. Uh, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm very splad to be here too, Jason. Thank you all for having me here, guys. Um, yeah, my name is Nick Cooey. I am a freelance programmer, film critic, uh, educator of high school students. I make them watch movies, uh, whether they like the movies or not. And my Twitter handle is at Cooey underscore Nick. And I guess I would say if you do hear any vague background noises from my end of the recording, it's probably because we have a African rat dog infestation in my house. <laughs> See, I prepped Nick by saying, we got these references when we introduce ourselves. And I was like, oh, that's fine. He didn't think of one. But then he actually came up with the banger of them all. He came up with the best one that he could have possibly had for his intro. Uh, if you can't tell, Nick is much better uh, acclimated to the films of Lucretia Martel, uh, the filmmaker whose film La Cienaga, La Cienaga we're going to be discussing today. Uh, I'll give a quick summary of the plot and everything. I'll fill in Aaron's role since he can't join us today. But uh, as preamble, uh, Nick, tell us what your history is with the Trilon and what has drawn you to Lucretia Martel. God, I think it's been nine years since I first heard of the Trilon. I remember actually I was, um, I had some sort of a canvassing job. I was canvassing with like a nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, political organization, uh, for based in St. Paul. And for some reason I was in South Minneapolis and all of a sudden I popped up outside of when the Trilon was micro cinema. And I was like, well, what, what is this? There's a movie theater right over here. And I remember the very first film. I ever saw the first screening I ever saw was the restored 35 millimeter print of safety last the Harold Lloyd movie. And, um, I think I can't remember if it had a live orchestra or not. I don't think it did, but, but I've definitely seen quite a few silent films with live recordings or since then. And, um, I, I'm a big, big fan of the trial and I've been following them for years. I've been really, really glad to see them survive the pandemic and to continue to flourish and thrive mm-hmm. um, over the last two and a half years. And um, I'm really glad that they have a podcast that's dedicated uh, to the beautiful programming they provide. Ish. Here's where I have to clarify. Unofficially, we are friends. We, we know John and everything. They, they would never tell anybody that they should listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, we, we just <laughs> We're not that creep, big creep around. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We just started doing it. And John was like, hey, that's pretty cool that you do that. You guys want to see some movies? We're like, hell yeah, John. Cool. Works for us. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> to get to the other half of why we've picked today's you for, the, mm. for this episode and why this episode is even happening, tell us a little bit about Lucretia Martel and yes, why, uh, why, why the trial might be playing them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
Lucrecia Martel, um, just to kind of preface that, my introduction to her, I came to her relatively late. I mean, she's a filmmaker who's been making films, well, since the late 80s, early 90s, mostly starting with the shorts, but her first film, La Cienega, which we'll be talking about today, came out in 2001. So that's already 20 plus years ago. But I first came to her work about four years ago when her fourth film and her last film, Zama, was released in the United States. And I remember hearing a lot of critical praise about it, but I wasn't familiar with who she was or what her work was like. And I just remember I don't coming to that film. And for me, it was like, it was kind of similar to, I'm not sure if you, maybe you guys have seen Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. But for me, it was like watching Dead Man for the first time, where it was a kind of hmm. a film that was working in a very recognizable generic tradition. And yet, stylistically, tonally, it was so bizarre. And it was zigging where I thought it would zag. And I just remember thinking to myself, who, who is this person who made this movie? And so then I just kind of tracked down the rest of her features, which was not very hard because she's only made four films. Mm-hmm. And, and so in a way, it makes sense that the Trilon would screen half of her uh, feature filmography. Um, so the other film that they're screening, which is maybe tied with Zama for my favorite of her work is The Headless Woman. And that came out in 2008. And that was her third film and that was made nine years before Zama and her work. If I had to describe it for anybody who isn't familiar with who she is or what her style is like, she primarily focuses on stories related to middle-class upper middle-class Argentinian families or enclaves. Sometimes even in the case of Zama, somebody who is a official magistrate for a colonialist outpost for the Spanish empire. Mm-hmm in the late 18th century. And so she's constantly working through these uh, subjects and issues about Argentina's fraught political history and, and issues around racism and gendered violence and classism, especially. But, and so, so she has all of that thematically going for her, but tonally what her work does is it throws the viewers for a loop. Like there's, she cuts and edits her films and puts them together in a way that, that it leaves you as the viewer for any first time viewer coming to it completely discombobulated in terms of where is this plot going? Who are even these characters that we're meeting? And that can be a frustrating experience for mm-hmm, some people mm-hmm. first coming to her work. I'm not sure how you guys, cause if I'm not mistaken, this is your first time visiting her work. Uh, I know Cody had seen this film once before. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I watched this one. I think it was like a leaving the criterion channel soon situation mm-hmm. or, or leaving a streaming service situation. It was like, Oh, I want to make a point and see this because I have no context for any of this. And so I watched it by myself, I think during quarantine times, like a couple of years ago, which is suboptimal compared to seeing it on 35 at the trial on. So for all intents and purposes, this feels like a fresh new experience. Right. Uh, well, as you might have noticed, uh, those very well-spoken thoughts about Lucretia Martel uh, have also been codified on Perisphere, the Trilon's blog. Uh, this is sort of where I'd like to discuss the, excuse me, you know, penetrate the actual conversation on the movie. Uh, but I should actually direct the listener to the show notes where we have linked, uh, let's see, less. I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't speak any form of, uh, <laughs> I only speak English. So I'm going to, I'm going to give this one shot. Uh, Las Fantasmas de Lucretia Martel. Is that fair? Did that work? Perfecto. Oh, 
uh, Dios mio. Um, <laughs> you can find that on Parasphere uh, at, at the Trilons blog. Link in the show notes. But I should actually tell people what this movie is about. I, we do this as tradition more than anything. I can't imagine anybody's listening to this without having seen the movie. But you should know, as recap, that La Cienega is a 2001 film written and directed by Lucrecia Martel. Uh, it stars Graciela Borges, Graciela Borges, Mercedes Moran, uh, Martin Ade- Ajemian, Daniel Venezuela, Valenzuela, listen to this, uh, and many others. It is apparently like kind of a stacked cast for uh, in Argentinian cinema. Follows the lifestyles inside an Argentinian family during a stay in their summer home outside the city. After Mecha, the matriarch of the family, is injured and uh, in a fall by the pool, her cousin Tali tends to her while Mecha heals, bringing her family for repeated trips to the remote home. Uh, Mecha's oldest son, Jose, also comes to visit. Space is tight. Kids are shooting shotguns in the woods and fishing with machetes in dam waters. Mecha thinks the housekeeper is stealing. Uh, a woman in the in the city thinks that she, that she thought, saw the Virgin Mary, and everyone is distracted, and it is very very hot. Um, that is as best a summary as I can come up with without just telling you exactly what happens in every scene of the movie. But like I said, uh, this piece on Perisphere helped me sort of contextualize a lot thematically and formally how this movie is working and what it's doing. Um, Nick, one of the things you said about uh, about like the way that this movie is plotted and how these characters interact, you use the term elliptically revealed that the uh, let's the exact phrases, uh, the motivations and relationships between Martel's characters in this film are elliptically revealed. And for some reason that rings, a, uh, excuse me, strikes a chord with me because I wasn't like you said, some of these things are picked up and dropped occasionally plot points that are sort of introduced in the beginning of the movie. Isabel might be stealing and they're going to get rid of her for it. That's picked up occasionally, but then Isabel is kind of around a lot. She's still very much there. She's still there very much bonding with Momi, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe go into a little bit what you mean by elliptical reveal and like how, uh, how the movie uses that to like build its story and build it, build like the, the narrative, even as it's like kind of, skeleton as even though as there's not one contiguous like narrative thread that the movie follows all the way through right absolutely well you know i think that the best way the best example that i could use to uh, i think that emblematizes martel's form of elliptical storytelling is in the opening of the film and it's a very famous opening sequence um that's been discussed prior whenever people talk about this film but i think it's it, it, it and for the context of the listener um it's essentially uh, we're, we're following Graciela Borges' character, Mecha, uh, at the side of a swimming pool with her guests there and her husband uh, is there. And then we cross cut between them kind of lounging around this pool to these kids hunting in the woods. We're, there's hardly any dialogue in this sequence. It's mostly a series of images and particularly these very unflattering close-ups of bodies dragging across the screen as they move their lawn chairs and this cacophonous screeching noise on the soundtrack. And immediately you as the viewer are put on edge. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I thought I, I was very tense in terms of just this whole vibe and even just cutting to, again, these kids carrying shotguns into the woods and they find this cow that's sunk in the mud and this dog is barking at the cow. And there's this real sense, it's almost like a, it's, it's almost like Lord of the Flies. Almost, you're wondering like, what in the world is going on here? Yeah. And you don't realize, like, for example, there's a child that turns around in one shot, and he has one eye, and it's a very striking image. And you don't realize mm-hmm. that that is uh, Mecha's son, Joaquin. And we don't realize until later on in the film that Joaquin had lost his eye in an accident, and that he will be undergoing an operation to get that eye replaced. But for the moment, what Martel is doing, for example, is Joaquin in that sequence. He's turning to screen right 
And then we cut to Mecha, who is then turning to it's it's like a match. It's a shot reaction shot, essentially. But of course, they're in two separate environments. But what Martell is doing is she is subliminally linking these disparate story threads. Mm-hmm. So she's using the grammar of film to make the audience aware that all of these different uh, characters will be connected or that their, their connections will be revealed maybe later on, though not necessarily in the way that we might expect. Sometimes it'll be a form of dialogue that's casually thrown away or thrown aside. Or there's still some ambiguity in terms of, especially when we get to a character like Jose, the oldest son who comes to visit Mecha and his relationship with one of the daughters, his sister Vero. And that relationship toes a very fine line between um, a brotherly love and like almost like a like David Lynch trying out, you know, the Richie... T- Margot Tenenbaum romance from the Royal Tenenbaums is how mm. I would, uh, just, I don't know. I don't know how would you guys made no, of that I, subplot. I, I, one, I love that you brought up, um, Lynch and Firewalk with me specifically in the piece that you wrote about, uh, this, about, uh, Martel's work. But two, I could just see Harry's, like, his hair stood on end when you mentioned the Royal Tenenbaums. You compared anything to the Royal Tenenbaums and Harry's already on. Uh, does that have your hackles raised, Harry? Oh, I yeah, I really loved the um, sort of like faux or like scare incestuous plot angle here. I think it fits really well with that malingering sense of unease that permeates every moment in this that is so well established by the sort of um, formal qualities of this movie that you just described, Nick. I think that um, there is there is such a like understated malice in the match cuts throughout this movie. Um, We will cut across the city. We will cut down into the city. We will cut back into um, the houses. The, the way that both of these homes are shot, both uh, Tali and um, the, the main house, um, Mecha's house, they look like they could be part of the same contiguous space, right? So often um, just because of the way that we flit in and out of them. Um, And, it really like I it would be too on the nose for this movie, but you can kind of hear the tea kettle um, starting to boil over in the first scene of this. Right. And it really follows through where like there is just this sense of nervous, frustrated energy that manifests itself in all of these sort of um, not really not pr- certainly not productive, but like not healthy ways, right? And even the the metaphor of the swamp, right? Stagnant water, water that is still, that is not moving forward. It, it very much speaks to that. And I feel like incest, I, not to be too sort of like gross about it, but like it really fits in metaphorically with everything that's happening here, right? Like this sort of idea that like these two people have these feelings that are sort of based in frustration and based in this sort of like mutual antipathy for their situation and for each other and for themselves that is also sort of in and it's in and of itself a shared connection and it's playing in this in this really fraught really um grown in space um that that really feels um you know i like i hate to use the swamp metaphor so often but it feels inescapable right it really feels like they're mm-hmm. they're sunk in something here yeah that's- um and i think that that's one subplot of many that really gets that across. And I, I love the Royal Tenenbaums comparison because that element of dysfunction is not absent from that movie. It just arrives at a different conclusion about 
where that heads um, than this one does because it's a much more optimistic movie than this one is. <laughs> uh, that's that brings to mind uh, Cody and I were talking about this movie just for a few minutes earlier this morning, and we were really trying to make. I mean, he's seen it before, so he's making more heads and tails of it than I was. But uh, you were bringing up specifically that, like, and I want to talk about how this extends to the whole, like, making of the movie and if there's, like, an overarching message or theme where that fits in. But, Cody, you used uh, phrasing, like, that they're all kind of stuck, that nobody is actually able to leave. Harry, you just mentioned a certain inescapability to a lot of these setups. Uh, Cody, do you mind bringing up examples of that, like, You brought up a couple that was like, I did not contextualize the fact that actually nobody really leaves this space, the the means by which they were trying to the uh, like events that transpire that could release them from like, I don't know, influence of this space or the people or the lifestyles that intersect here, Mm -hmm. uh, but that it just wasn't. Um, I'm probably taking all the air out of the room for you to actually make your point, but go ahead. No, (laughs) no, uh, no, not at all. I, um, yeah, I, I love when, um, movies and and this one does a great job of it nick um contextualized the the start of this film really well like there's a focus on on bodies and physical spaces this isn't quite i i feel like i haven't like brought this sort of thing up in a while it's it's not quite as um as like on the nose as we've been in previous episodes and previous film discussions about like house or setting as character but this like there's definitely a place for that here like this we're characterizing the like the moving bodies in this space like that those first couple um or rather that first sequence watching everybody um meander around the pool it felt like i was watching the walking dead or something and then match cutting so aggressively between that and like kids in the woods with weapons and animals stuck in mud and um the movie doing sort sort of the same getting into the same sort of cadence at the end of the movie as well and bookending it really nicely with um similar sort of like match cuts and just like not tying off threads, if anything, maybe the opposite, but just like offering one real banger of a note for each of these sort of subplots and reminding you, hey, remember, this is what um, all of it's been about. Everything here is like figuratively and literally confined within this space um, that we're about to see in that, you know, at the end of the movie that we just finished watching. And like, you know, nobody really gets to leave um, like with an asterisk, like Jose is able to kind of float between the spaces, um, maybe just like because he's from he's from the swamp, he's from the puddle. Um, Mercedes, there's that whole bit about like, oh yeah, Mercedes coming in a few days, Mercedes never ends up making the trip. Um, uh, Isabella, the, um, the uh, you know, hired help who is accused of stealing throughout the movie by um, the family's matriarch, she um, she gets to leave, but like in, you know, arguably worse circumstances, like, you know, it's not without like a great cost that she's able to like leave the premises. And so I, like, again, this movie is not particularly subtle about any of that. And I like, and all of the sort of minor, you know, A through G plots that we see um, for as, you know, not as tethered this film is to narrative, all the little threads we see do feed into this sort of um, larger point um, uh, of, or, you know, a handful of larger points, but like the main one, at least for me being kind of how these people and these bodies are all existing in this physical space and how, you know, they're, they're not trapped, but they're, I mean, they're definitely trapped. Uh, they're, they're definitely stuck. They're not getting out anytime soon. And, and the, you know, the next generation is going to be feeling that soon enough as well. 
Yeah, I uh, I really like the way you characterize that, Cody. I was just really struck by like the, and this is more condescending than I mean it to sound because I think that the movie does a really good job of characterizing the sort of um, socioeconomic and material realities that lead to something like this coming about. But I was really struck by the failure of imagination in, in the part of a lot of these characters, right? Like even someone who seems as sort of like um, as... Uh, like a ladies' man or as somebody who's moving and shaking as Jose, right? Like he ends up in a, an affair, a relationship with uh, a woman that also had an affair with his father, right? And like, that's another great example of incest. All of these things are so insular. You kind of get the sense, especially again, from the way that all of these um, spaces and people and bodies are so conflated and interrelated with one another, all sort of driving toward this universal sort of malaise that um that there's something happening here where like these people are getting trapped in relation to one another right like literally there is a very incestuous metaphor not only within the the um literal scope but also like just the fact that it feels like everyone here is very intimately interrelated and sort of bringing out the worst in each other in some ways or at least Mm -hmm that they are sort of um they are limited by each other instead of sort of like given new possibility that even the sort of like really tragic um relationship that Isabel has with her maid sort of ends with her maid going to be with her sister and Isabel loses this sort of connection to the outside that she had right and there there's a great sense of like resignation um on both on all sides here back toward this sort of like stasis i guess mm-hmm. well that that makes me think um nick does that does that align with what you in, in again i just have your piece next to me because i'm looking for really great quotes as we're going but uh you talk about the purgatorial stupor rather than a divine transcendence that her style that like uh like separating body parts from bodies and sort of how people are framed in this movie is that sort of what you're talking about? Is is like, are we comparing the malaise that Harry's talking about? Sort of that, um, uh, I won't say uncaring, but like ignorant nature of some characters. Does that line up with that with, with what you're talking about there? A, a purgatorial stupor. Well, when I was writing that passage, I was thinking a lot about um, actually, and I write this a little bit in the piece, comparing um, some shots of, for example, Mecha's hand clasping onto her glass of red wine which she puts ice cubes in which for me i'm not a want a glass you know i'm not an ice cube in a red wine kind of guy like for me that's repellent but to me it, it was very evocative of robert bresson's pickpocket which i know was a screening at the trilon a few years ago and there's something about what bresson does where he focuses a lot on it in pickpocket but also in other movies like l'argent on human hands and the activity of human motion and of motion and and Bresson very famously called his actors, he didn't call them actors, he called them models. And he used non-professionals who he would constantly direct them to deprive themselves of emotion to the point that they were simply acting out what they were supposed to do as characters. And through that, I mean, his whole philosophy was related more towards this pursuit of of these of these more kind of theological questions around the state of being, like this epistemological mm-hmm. question rather than what what Martell is doing, which I, I think is interesting because she's also someone who I think it's it's worth noting, like she, you know, is from Salta, 
which is in the northwestern region of Argentina. That's where her first three films are set. Mm. And it sort of plays a sp- the spectral presence or absence. It's a structuring absence in Zama as well. So, so Salta is definitely a very important part of um, Lucrecia Martel's cultural upbringing because it's also a very religious uh, region. It's been referred to as kind of the capital of faith. And she actually went Mm. to a prestigious Catholic school uh, when she was a young girl. And Mm. she, and she went to that school primarily because her uncle had taught her Greek and Latin and she wanted to go to a school to learn more language. And that particular school was the only one that um, provided any sort of curriculum around language. And she ended up having sort of a crisis of faith and then lost her faith at the age of 15. But Hmm. there is this interesting agnostic ideal that she has about religion and not just in terms of spirituality, but in terms of, you know, what the institution of religion, what role it plays within the broader scope of Argentina's social and political history. And that's something that Mm. you see a little bit in La Cienega with uh, the Virgin Carmen as well as as one of the many subplots in the film. Yeah. uh, That answered your question. No, no, it it did because it makes me think of um, like, and and I have no formal film training or criticism training. It's all just learning from people. But when watching this movie, it comes to mind that there are even like, if we wanted to broadly categorize uh, this film or any of Martel's movies as like a slice of life, like not with any particular, I said, narrative drive, just sort of watching the pieces come together and see and seeing them as a portrait sort of thing. Um, Even those stories are usually prescriptive in a lot of ways to where it's like, there are still characters, there are still arcs, there are still motivations, there are still, um, you know, conflicts that are meant to resolve and lead us to an understanding or an enlightenment or something. And what you're saying about her history with uh, religion and her, you know, uh, rescinding from faith, uh, it just makes me think like, well, that that's sort of the antithesis of this movie. It is literally trying to display not in an unbiased way per se, but in as little of a didactic or prescriptive way as possible. This space with these people with um, you mentioned how it's usually about middle or upper, upper middle class in a way punching up a little bit. I mean, these are people at their summer home who don't care enough about each other to notice that the matriarch of the family has slipped and fallen in the glass of her own red wine, you know, uh, glass. like it's, it's pretty cold, sometimes cruel uh, story to tell, but it's also not saying these people are uh, bad for living this way or, you know, the like coming out of military dictatorship of the eighties, this is like the ex where the excess has led us. You don't really get that vibe. It, it's occasionally like it's tragic, it's comedic, but it's never uh, really like pointing and saying you should feel this or you should do this. This is sort of the prescriptive. Um, this is the end point I wanted to get to, I guess, for me. I, I don't know if I'm not picking up something that everybody else was, but it felt a little freer than that, a, a little less shackled to what, you know, an end point for this tale might've naturally been, so to speak. Yeah. There's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm, I'm excited to get into it. First of all, the religion thing makes a lot of sense to me. There's a real, uh, like waiting for Godot vibe to this entire movie where it's like, you're sort of like, they're literally waiting for the word from God, right? Like 
they want the Virgin Mary to show up and like give them a sign so that things can move forward again. You kind of get the feeling that everything is on pause. I mean, again, the, the swamp versus flowing water, right? Versus progress versus like continuing somewhere. Um, Lucrecia Martel described um, Argentina itself as, um, quote, a society that lives vaguely hoping that nothing will ever change and in terror of everything repeating itself indefinitely, unquote. <laughs> That's uh, such, which a is, good, such a good comparison. It's a it's it's just a perfect sort of like logline to this movie, right? In a lot of ways, because it's like I really love that um, this movie does so much of the thing that we talk about a lot, which is that it rather than being prescriptive and asking you to draw conclusions, Jason, I would agree with you. It's a primarily a descriptive movie, but it, it's also formally recreating the feeling in which it means to impart. Right? I think that like. Hmm the the frustration that we feel and in my in my opinion like i'll be honest right maybe it's just because it's my first time seeing it i was frustrated watching some of this movie right because i was like sure. hey, when the fuck is something gonna happen right like <laughs> I, f- I feel like it's it's just like um it's it's like a ticking time bomb except that it just ticks forever right and you're like all right like is something going to explode? And I I love that we end up in this place where it's like it's actually the worst possible thing is if the time bomb never explodes, right? If you're just waiting for it to explode forever, you know. And um, I just think that like it it managed to emotionally put me in a place with these characters, right? And I think that um, it's really fun to examine. That And I think that like there are just enough sort of like traditional um, cinematic or literary metaphors within this movie, right? With the African rat dog and with the um, religion um, and with the uh, the wine versus the bodies um, to, to start to get you to that place. But I think you're right, Jason. Like I really feel like this, this movie does not want you to arrive at a sort of um, – prescriptive narrative conclusion in the way a lot of other movies might. And I think that it's doing something very different and very unique formally um, in the absence of that clear purpose. Right. And that to the point where that absence of clear purpose might itself be sort of (laughs) a part of the purpose. Right. I I find that a really fascinating notion. Right. I mean, I think you guys have raised some really excellent points. And I mean, I love Harry, what you're talking about in terms of just the frustration that comes with this. I'll be, completely honest with you guys, the first time I saw this movie was actually on a large screen and I ended up falling asleep halfway through it. And it's, I, I had necess- to take it. I had to take it in two chunks, not only because I fell asleep, but because I was a really, really tired boy. And it was a late night, but I know what you say. I like, I ended up with a positive experience, but what does it say? <laughs> well, exactly. And it's also because, I mean, you know, a, because there is no clear narrative trajectory that we're getting uh, from the film. And when Martel, wrote the script, you know, a lot of her, uh, her mentors, uh, were saying, and her colleagues were saying, Hey, you know, you should probably minimize the amount of characters that you actually have in this film. Try to make it a little more streamlined. And she just really? said, okay. And then ignored them. Completely. <laughs> <laughs> Queen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, well, you know, I mean, I'm sure you guys maybe have known this, but in case your listeners haven't, the, the one thing I really love, and it's the one thing I, about a couple of years or last year when I got my brother to watch one of her movies. I was talking a little bit about the Marvel cinematic universe and we were talking about black widow. And I just said, Hey, you know, like, yeah, it's so crazy that they wanted to, that Marvel wanted to get Lucrecia Martel to do black widow. And he was like, who is that? And I said, well, <laughs> we're going to watch Zama. <laughs> <laughs> and 
we watched it, and he was just like, huh. <laughs> Can you fucking imagine her Black Widow? I want to see that movie. I Literally, I do want to see that movie so badly. It sounds unbelievable. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, and she, I, from what I understand, she was like, yeah, sure. But, like, I got to direct the action scenes. And Marvel's like, well, let's get a, someone who knows how to direct action scenes. And she's like, no, no, thanks. <laughs> but oh, <man>. But <laughs> I just wanted to kind of. Um, uh, uh, touch a little bit on what Jason had brought up earlier about a question of didacticism, which I think is a really great point in terms of differentiating like Lucrecia Martel's work and kind of more broadly, the work of the new Argentine cinema, which she was a part of from some of the, uh, earlier films that were coming out in the eighties and even the early nineties. Um, and, you know, comparing, I mean, Jason, you were bringing up, um, very briefly, um, kind of dictatorship, in Argentina. And of course there was the, um, the dirty war, which was taking place at the, if, if memory serves correctly, 76 through 83. Mm-hmm. And after that, um, which of course saw the disappearances, the forced disappearances of many, many people. Um, then there was this, uh, uh, influx of film that was coming out into Argentinian cinema that was trying to very specifically articulate and address the trauma the social and interpersonal trauma that was wrought by the military dictatorship. And that, I mean, one of the films that was like an international success from that period was um, the official story, which came out in 1985. And I know that um, Martel and some of the other filmmakers in the new Argentine cinema movement, um, their interest was to try to veer away a little bit from that didacticism to try to make work that was politically conscious, that is politically conscious and attempting to uh, speak to the myriad forms of repression of cultural repression and historical repression in Argentinian society, but in a way that's formal, not just simply narrative. And for Hmm. me, that's what makes her work actually really quite modern and compelling to watch. Agreed. And I I think I felt all of that um, to be more, more compelling the second time around there. There's obviously some context that will forever be lost on me. Um, A scrawny white boy who's never left the United States um, and doesn't read books. I read sometimes, Um, but I I, maybe a a bit of a windup, but I think in some ways, I I mean, all of y'all's recent points have, uh, have fed into this a little bit, but um, you know, with regards to the sort of um, like elliptical references that this movie makes and the sort of it's amorphous and, like some characters, uh, you know, um, whether they have names or not, like they're, they're not important, but actually also they're, they're very important. And the, 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 um, the Virgin Mary sightings, um, like I, I really, I love how those feed into, and they're like, they're little, like they're not intermissions, but they are little, like, let's pause and catch our breath. Let's check in with, you know, the people on the street and see, you know, these people that we're never going to see again. Uh, let's, let's see what they think about. It. And it's, it's laying the groundwork for, for something it's feeding into this, um, uh, like, uh, uh, environmental or like the context of the environment that we're in. And like, we're not, uh, at least like, I mean, even watching it the second time, I was like, I can't remember how this will actually like make me feel later on or what this will actually capitalize on or, or what the, you know, what punchline we're being set up for. But, um, like it, it pays off big at the end. And uh, like, I, I said this to uh, Harry and Jason at, at two different times. Like I love the first, like three minutes of this movie and the last like five minutes of this movie. Um, just uh, those, like those, uh, and I, well, I think I used the term bookending earlier, but just that, that note that we sort of leave on, um, you know, whether or not, however much it feeds into the films like didact, uh, didacticism or, or not, you know, we're, we're given 
a, a lot of information to sort of make some of our or to draw some of our own conclusions. You know, um, what people uh, are seeing, uh, mostly are seeing with regards to um, you know the you know the virgin sightings and um, you know Momi at the end. Um, she. I, it's like the last lines of the movie. I think it's just like, she says she doesn't see anything, which means that she's not like, you know, she's either not naive enough to sort of believe that there's like, um, uh, whether it's like a means for escape, uh, escape or like a, a way out of being stuck or that there is something like beyond kind of what's in front of her or, or it means that she, like, she's not that. And she's not like, um, you know, uh, uh riddled with, you know, trauma and, you know, the, uh, and I guess that's maybe sort of the thing, like the, the bit of context that's lost and is important to know of just like the trials that these people, um, you know, that, that this and other communities have, have faced, um, you know, um, sociopolitical and otherwise. And just like, you know, mm-hmm. she's not at that point where she's like, she, she's not of that generation, um, of those generations older. She's not numb to it. She's not like past the point of hysteria where like she needs to now believe something. And the fact that she's not either of those things, like lends those final notes to be very much like uh, that tea kettle that, or I guess maybe, maybe more like what's uh, yeah. It's scary when a bomb goes off, but like what happens when a bomb is supposed to go off and it doesn't like that's extremely frightening. And that's kind of what those last sort of notes feel like you're the gunshots from the woods and like, you know, cut to credits. And that's just like, I don't know. Uh, I I have no off ramp for this, but um, I'll, 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 yeah, go ahead. Go the ahead. The kid falls off the ladder too, right? Like, I well, yeah, so, right, right before happened, before that. Right? Yes, yep. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I think that like you just described basically this movie's um, take on intergenerational trauma really well, right? Is that like nobody is equipped to understand the ways in which the sort of like social and racial animus that is permeating all of these people's interactions with each other and maybe even more sort of like pertinently with themselves and how they understand themselves is affecting the next generation, right? Like I think that it's not an accident that children are such a big part of this movie or that they end up where they end up. Um, you know, like the, the, um, African rat dog metaphor, the, the kid is growing teeth like, what he's heard described as the African rat dog. And he has this sort of dual fascination and revulsion, right? And this story in the first place was concocted um, by his sisters for the purposes of tormenting him. And they basically did it because they were just bored and frustrated themselves, right? And I think that like something that really fascinates me that I want to talk to you about some more, Nick, is that um, I really like the way you described this too, Cody and and Jason, the way that this movie is so pointedly not didactic because it feels more exploratory, right? Like I think that like the the big difference here is that I can see all of the sort of um threads that are being woven and how Martell is sort of tracing trauma and frustration and where those things come from and what they lead to um toward the future. But I think she's more interested here in maybe like unpacking or not even unpacking, but just sort of like trying to explore all of those different permutations. Because it it really struck me that like there is on top of everything else we've been describing intergenerationally, there is also like a great deal of class and race commentary here. And it's it's very intersectional in exploring the ways that um, those things manifest, right? Where like, it's so much about this sort of central, almost like 
I, I hate to I hate to say it because I think that this this movie is is almost more engaged than this, but there is there is this sort of like existential ennui that is that is like really producing a lot of the anger that is being diffused in the form of racism and in the form of um classism, right? And in the form of especially like the the gummo kids uh, in in different parts of this where like they're literally just like laying fun terrible out in the woods, like killing animals for fun. Right. And talking about maybe killing other children. Um, and uh, I'm just, I'm really interested in like, what do you, I know that that's not didactic, but what do you think, what do you think is happening with all of that, Nick? Right. And like how, how those things intersect. Right. Like, I wonder, I wonder if there is sort of like, something to be gleaned from all of these different intersecting things with regard to trauma or with regard to political history, or even with regard to just sort of like human nature, maybe, <laughs> you know? No, it's a really great question, Harry. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it makes me think a lot about like watching it this last time I, I rewatched the film at the trial on right before this show, because I wanted to kind of freshen up and, and, and acclimate myself to the film again. And, and I mean, which, and I think this is one of those films that really benefits from re- all of her films. I think re- benefit from repeat viewings, but especially La Cienega because there are so many different characters and because you are actively working to pick apart, you know, and generate these connections about how does this relate to that? Um, but there's a moment where Tali, uh, the Mercedes Moran uh, character, and she's the cousin of Mecha, you know, she says at one point to her kids, uh, when she's talking about um, sort of this this tryst with Jose uh, in a relationship with Mercedes, you know, she says history repeats itself. And that, you know, it's a throwaway line, but it just gets at the heart of so much of kind of what the film is about, which is just about how cultural repression begets repetition. How when especially children, you know, are sort of positioned with or they're forced within these social positions that they are condemned to repeat the mistakes that their parents have made. And the wonderful thing I think about Martel's filmmaking is that she doesn't uh, look down upon uh, any of her characters necessarily. I mean, she doesn't look away from their ugliness. She is very, very direct about showing when these people, like when Mecha, you know, she's wearing her sunglasses indoors, draped in her mm-hmm. uh, her gown. She She's sort of like this insectoid riff on (laughs) miss haversham from like fucking uh great expectations you know like there's a gothic undercurrent to so much of this and yet yeah or like and there's also like a little bit of like there's some there's like quite a bit of comedy you know in this film and i think in some of her other films like you know gregorio the husband dying his hair and like he just keeps getting you know the short end of the stick when (laughs) people are just like yeah yeah, they're like dude dude come on like Let's, who are you kidding? <laughs> and the kids are even like, oh my God, he's dyed his hair. He's just like, and he's, and he's so despondent and he's just like passive that he just lumbers along like a zombie. And, um, Gothic is but, such a great way to describe so much of this movie, right? Like even the font choice early on, it really feels like it's Argentinian Faulkner or something, right? Where it's just like these dilapidated mansions and like these cities that feel like they were like, post-apocalyptic almost in the sense that like whatever was happening is no longer happening and everybody is just still here. You know, it's a really great vibe movie in that way. 
Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to add one last point to that, which is that I think that gothic strain of horror is, even though I don't think Lucrecia Martel explicitly makes horror films, what I find so compelling about her work is that she is operating along these conventions of horror. And that's rooted in her childhood. When she was a child, uh, she's told about this many, many times in interviews that she has, uh, that that during siestas, when the adults were sleeping, the kids were kind of running around. And then she, her grandmother would tell um, ghost stories to her and her siblings. And she, so stories kind of like the African rat dog story or like Brothers Grimm. So, and that laid the foundation for her love of like a very particular form of storytelling, like oral storytelling, but like we've seen, like she's sort of taken that basis and that foundation and drawn that out towards genre filmmaking. I mean, and she's talked about how all of the titles of her films could be B horror movies, you know, and that's a very conscious decision because, and it, when you, if you guys do end up seeing the headless woman, it's one of those movies that I, when I saw it, I, I was very taken by it, but then I realized because a friend brought it up to me and I, that it is ostensibly her riffing on her Carby's Carnival of Souls, which is a movie that I love very much. But the fact that she, you know, she's such a distinct artist that she's able to make the work her own and yet speak to this transnational lineage of Mm -hmm. fiction and of storytelling. Like, I think it's very thrilling for me. Yeah, I'm looking forward now. Um, I know that we sort of started this conversation by saying it can be frustrating, it can be hard, it, like it took me two tr- two tries to get through kind of thing. But honestly, the more I talk about it, the more I'm I feel like I'm on Martel's level about it. I mean, not with the same understanding, but at least I can predict a little bit. I can say, you know, I I see the pieces here, and I know how roughly she's going to play them, and they're not going to be like I've seen in other films. I'm actually looking forward to looking. I mean, I didn't think finally just finishing this movie at home. I did not think. Yeah, I want to watch another one of those. <laughs> but now it's like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared. You know, I'm sort of like I have the engines filled with the right kind of gas, and I'm, I'm ready to imbibe another at some point. Yeah, I'm, my, my Harvey is, is, I don't know, I don't know motorcycles. Revved. Harry, you take revved it. is what you say. Okay, thank um, you. You'll know when we get our matching motorcycles finally one of these days. We'll have um, our own uh, his motorbike her island moment. Exactly. His motorbike, his motorbike. Um, <laughs> so that that's why you opened with uh, Les Fantasmas, right? Like that's you open your your piece talking about and framing it in the mold of ghost stories, and it's it's fascinating that you bring that up, right? Because this is this is sort of like very much like modern and especially postmodern, like ghost stories as like explorations of intergenerational trauma, particularly when they're passed down orally are like a very like rich and well-trod ground, right? Like that's every single Toni Morrison book is essentially about uh, like some kind of a ghost. Um, And uh, I, I, I find that fascinating. It's like, what are they, what are Martell's ghosts of, right? Like where did they, I mean, cause like I have this sort of like very, um, broad reading, right. About the sort of like failed histories of, um, Argentina or of, you know, ideologies maybe generally and in how they've led to this and, you know, take a shot or whatever, but like this very ontological future, right. Where it's like, like these people are existing in a different world than the world in which they should have been. Right. And so they are sort of ghosts of themselves in the sense that they have these thoughts and these feelings that are producing these anxieties and this racial and social animus and these um, 
sort of internally misdirected frustrations that are all sort of like this result of like things just being different from what they should be. Right. And I think that like, even the class stuff here is really fascinating in, in that respect. Right. Because you kind of get the feeling like, and it's, it's hilarious to say after we've said everything, but like, this is kind of a vacation movie, right? It's like, kind of like, oh, these people are like hanging out at their like resort home to get out of the heat of the city. And like, this is just what a vacation looks like. Right. And I love that reframing. And I wonder like, what, what is it, what is it reframing? Right. Like what, what are we trying to like, what, what, what should I take away thinking about differently after having seen her treatment of these people in this place? Right. Like how should, how should I take away this reading towards sort of my understanding of either like, I don't know, Argentinian um, social mores or just sort of like generally like the history of these people, you know, because it does, it really, it feels so ghostly to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't think that there is, I think it's a really great question, Harry. And I don't think that there is a, a single or particular reading that Martel would want anybody to take away from her work. And I, you know, in that way, she's much like David Lynch, you know, who is very famous for refusing any sort of authoritative stance on explaining what his work means. But I mean, I don't think she's as opaque in that way. I mean, I think she is very, she's speaking very specifically to particular subsets of historical and intergenerational trauma, like we've talked about. But for me, what I take away from Lucrecia Martel's work, um, it's not even just thematically, but I think it's, it's a fusion of theme and form. When I'm watching some of her films, I am watching ghost stories. And these are ghost stories about people who are trapped within their own myopic prescribed roles. Hmm. And by emphasizing constantly through a sonic texture that's so rich and enigmatic and unnerving and through this very unorthodox framing as well. Martel is constantly, and that's kind of what I was trying to, I think, get a little bit at in my piece that I wrote for Paris Fears. What I love about her work is that she is constantly trying to signal our attention to what is outside of the frame. And in doing so, she is leaving us as the audience to take away, once we leave the theater, this sense of heightened consciousness of who we are, what our places within a grander political and historical project uh, when it comes to struggle and equity. And in that respect, her work is, I think, resoundingly political, but uh, again, not uh, in a proselytizing way. Yeah. I And even the frustration we've been discussing works into that, right? Because like, I think that, that this fusion of form and theme that you mentioned, um, like we become frustrated with the characters that they can't see what's beyond the frame because it's so easy for us to see, right? Like, I think that um, the failure of imagination that I brought up is so evident there where it's just like, why don't you simply be different from how you are, <laughs> You know, I, that was like, honestly, it's a, it's a really base response. Right. But like, I was like, these people's, all of their problems are invented, you know, like they're just cooped up in this house all the time and they keep, it's like, just break out of, I would simply leave the swamp, <laughs> you know? And it's like, obviously that's not the way it works, but I think that, I think you're right. Right. Like, I, I think that like, I definitely like, I never want to experience anything like this and Hey, uh, I, sh I sure have every time I've met extended family anywhere, 
Right. And well, it's like, right. that's an interesting thing to think about, you know, and I'm well, never going to think yeah. about it exactly the same way. <laughs> and, you know, and, and Tali, you know, she tries to leave the swamp, right? She tries to go to Bolivia with, um, you know, Mecha on a trip. And then, of course, her husband is trying to help her out by buying school supplies mm-hmm. wholesale. So she doesn't have to go to Bolivia. So there's the question again about like, why are you taking a trip? Is it simply to yeah. participate as a consumer or is it simply to step outside of what your reality is? And right. especially if it's a repressive reality. And that's one of the ways that this movie sort of played with my expectations. I know Cody was talking, or was, yeah, but everybody was kind of talking about how um, when, oh gee, I'm forgetting the the young boy's name, the one who falls on the ladder and dies, the one with who's growing two sets of teeth, essentially. Um, yeah, Luciano. Luciano. As soon as he, I, I know the, for Cody, that was one of the more early instances of like, okay, so this is the movie starting to wrap up and starting to make its point that people don't get out of the swamp, La, Cien, La Cienega. But like for me, it was as soon as that, uh, as soon as the books get, to, or sorry, the school supplies are discovered in the back of the car. It's like, oh yeah, this totally. was th- this was their little tiny chance. This was her chance to get out, to go to Bolivia, to like do another thing, to not be stuck in this morass. Uh, and but she is pre- like saved from that toil by something that ultimately leaves her landlocked there, you know, unable to escape. Right. I, that again, it was just playing with that expectation of she's going to look for ways out and something bad is going to happen and she's not going to be able to, everybody's going to have like the boy is going to die. Um, Isabel is going to have to leave and uh, all these other things are going to happen that are going to prevent people from, uh, from uplifting themselves from uh, a pretty weird, toxic situation. And yet like something very good happens. They get good school supplies and they don't have to worry about it. And that is the thing that saves them from this thing that they did not want to be saved from, I guess. It's toil and convenience as well. Right. Because I'm thinking about Mecha buying this refrigerator that she sees a ad for oh, yeah. on television simply because she needs ice cubes for her wine and she gets the fridge, you know, so as a consumer, she is successful, but in terms of actually addressing the deeper issues, which are plaguing her and then more metaphorically, what are plaguing all of them within that society? I mean, none of that's addressed. Yeah, it is. It is a wonderfully, I, I don't know. Uh, it, what's that thing called in football where somebody like starts running at you, but then you do a twist and you turn around and go around them. Uh, it's, it's called double tapping Z <clears throat> thing here on your controller. Oh, on, wow. From, from, is that a video game reference? Did Cody night just make day, a sign? Day is cool. night. I the, hate this. Yeah. We've, that we've is lost NFL our blitz. Sure. I believe. Thank you. Um, taking a bow. <laughs> just, uh, I feel like I could talk about this a lot longer, but, uh, just one more thing is that I really like the, um, the Luciano is the, is the boy, right? Um, <clears throat> and you said that you thought he died, Jason, which is so sad to me. I mean, he's not moving, I guess. Didn't I didn't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's, I think it's maybe open ended, but what I really love about his story and what I think is really emblematic of a lot of what's happening here is that, um, it all sort of like we can see it's it's one of the most traditionally narrative aspects of the movie that that is sort of Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's uh, African rat dog, right? Is that like we can see the power that this mythology holds on him and the way it, it is advanced by his his um, sisters, but also like just his experiences out in the woods, his experiences with other um kids and that fascination and revulsion that we described but like ultimately nobody else understands what it is he feels um so 
afraid of, right? Like his mom dismisses him when he brings it up and he can't sort of articulate himself the um, fear that he's having. And that's sort of like, in my opinion, why he climbs the ladder, right? Is that it's like nobody was there to sort of like help him contextualize and, and just sort of understand this fear and where it was coming from, right? And so like, I think that if there is a... Um, and I don't think there is, like, I definitely agree with Nick's view, but like, there is some sort of sense that like something is, there's a failure happening here, right? It's not just the endless repetition. It's that the endless repetition is going to lead to like a breakdown. Right. Tragedy or comedy. One of those two, I guess, <laughs> you know, uh, it is, it's like Nick, you said, you uh, wrote in your Perisphere piece um, about how it is through like seeing what or an attempt to see what is beyond the frame that actually is Luciano's downfall that literally like he's trying to see the dog on the other side because he wants to see if it is a monster or if it's just a dog that's barking at the wall that's going to knock it down eventually um a lot of a lot of memorable pieces in this movie uh it sounded like did we have consensus i need to know what people think about whether or not Luciano did in fact i mean he looked unfortunately you know, across my heart, he looked pretty dead at the bottom of that ladder. Was he supposed to have died in the text of the movie? Well, yes. I, okay. I, I hate to break oh. it. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Uh, no, I, the reason I know that is simply because I've, um, well, and he does look very dead. And I know that Lucrezia Martel has kind of written that in a lot of ways, kind of the impetus for La Cienega was that image of just him falling off the ladder and dying. Oh. And that's kind of linked to like, and the way that she described like the structure of the story of the film was almost like a phone call. Like it's a very circuitous uh, roundabout way of trying to get to the point of saying, Oh, like, you know, I was visiting family the other weekend and this was going on and this is that. And then like this little boy heard the story about this African rat dog. So then he pulled out this ladder and then he huh. falls off the ladder and then that's how he died, you know? Yeah. And so it's that, a, yeah. It's almost like a, like a really exploratory circuitous mystery story, right? Like we could have started with, Luciano falling off the ladder and dying and then being like, okay, well, why did this happen? Who's responsible? Right. Wow. And like answering that question, like who is responsible for this thing happening is like, well, <laughs> sit down, you know, like I'm <laughs> going to tell you a story about this family. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about it like that, but that is an incredible way. To, again, like another way to frame another way, for, another tool for me to go into the next Martel movie I see and say, okay, so this happened in the last movie, this, this, this like, Slight twist on what I was expecting is how it played out last time. Let's see if that can better prepare me to like watch this one in one sitting or to like not be frustrated this time, but I look forward to it frustrated or not the next time I'm able to watch one. Um, I don't mean to cut anybody off, but we did promise about an hour's worth of content. Uh, I want to open up the junk drawer, uh, which Nick is just where we let out all of our like any one-off thoughts. I just liked this shot to like a bigger idea about casting or whatever, just quick one-offs that, uh, that, that didn't make it into the episode. For example, we were talking about Gregorio and how he just seems so beaten down. I love that his character is so beaten down because in any other movie, he would be like the villain. He would be the one who gets either his comeuppance or he gets some sort of tragic revenge. Uh, but really he is just a sad sack browbeaten motherfucker that just mopes around the entire movie and has to sleep in the other room by the end of the movie that I just love that as a little microcosm of what this movie's doing is sort of turning those expectations on their head and presenting them back to me without filter, without censorship. Uh, just, yeah, he's, he's unfaithful 
to his beloved. Um, he is not going to be able to sleep in his own bed and he dyes his hair because he's a pitiful old man. Uh, there you have it. You know, um, did anybody else have any junk drawer thoughts they want to break out before we go to our final segment of the show? I mentioned it briefly, but like, have you guys ever spent like a long weekend at a family cabin and you just are there with like a bunch of cousins or extended family members. Uh, it feels a whole lot like this movie. <laughs> like in in addition to everything else that this movie gets right, I like you will end up not sleeping and hating yourself and hating everybody else a little bit, even these people that you're ostensibly supposed to love. So like just on that visceral level, this movie really worked for me. Um, and not and by worked. For me, I don't necessarily mean I enjoyed the experience yeah. of having it work for me, but uh, <laughs> it certainly was good at what it was doing. You know, this just occurred to me as you were talking, Harry, but thinking about family gatherings and just like portraits of dysfunctional families that are bookended by tragedy. Uh, this would make a phenomenal Thanksgiving double feature with the ice storm. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. For a nightmare weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one way to get uh, your audience to leave the theater feeling like crap. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that La Cienega is kind of what Thanksgiving is all about, right? <laughs> like, this, it's definitely, it's a big Thanksgiving movie. A lot of sure. ghosts in Thanksgiving, too, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's that time of year. <laughs> it's time to start thinking about it, guys. It's this 27th of August as we record this. Um <laughs> Cody, I want to leave the door open to you one last time before uh, asking Nick if he's still got time for for a final segment. I absolutely. Uh, do. Oh, oh, oh! Nice. Uh, in that case, I'll just say Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy um, Thanksgiving for this year. Um, so then, uh, if you got time, Nick, uh, we need to let Harry introduce us to the final segment of our show. Yeah, it's. Uh... Oh, well, I, pre- I prepped. You... I prepped Nick. Oh, so I'm sorry. I was not here. I was playing D and D. Yeah. <laughs> Because I'm the worst. But uh, yes, it is the segment that we like to call. All right, get ready for it. <gasps> Cody's Noties. There you go. Very the good. Rhythm, Amazing. The harmony. Listen to us. Mm, everything. Sacre bleu. Uh, thank you so much, gentlemen, for that introduction. Me gusto mucho. Since we are talking about La Cienega and because La Cienega, which I'm not going to nail the pronunciation as much. I'm just going to keep saying it the gringo way and embrace um, how shitty I am. Um, but because it means the swamp, um, I think we all know, uh, what we have to do here today. Um, spoilers, this is going to be really silly and stupid. Um, we're going to take a a little trip, uh, to a, a little trip to a little segment that I like to call swamp love. And the specific swamp in question is none other than our favorite, plant-based humanoid dc superhero swamp thing that's right you didn't think we wait, would talk so, wait, about wait him, wait, but wait sorry swamp thing <laughs> yeah is, because is that really means swamp. <laughs> did i fucking stutter jason <laughs> okay i won't question my, what, my uh, what i'm off. gonna do is alter yeah what, uh, what it, you know what uh, go what ahead be, yeah go ahead would it be la cosa cienega would that be how you would pronounce the sw- the swamp thing in Spanish. Did you just did you just Google translate that? No, I, I mean I I looked up what thing is in Spanish, and I already knew what Cienega was from this movie. If, so if thank you. If there's one thing I've learned doing this um, this humble podcast is that none of us here should be taken as authorities for any pronunciation <laughs> on anything. Period. Um, 
A shout so, uh, out to Finn. Finn is holding their head in their hands right now. Um, uh, any any other any other quick jabs anybody would like to get in before I continue? We're we exhausting our thoughts. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to alternate between the three of you. We're gonna, we're going to learn some stuff today. We're going to learn about Swamp Thing. Um, uh, this is uh, the only way I'm going to get my dad to listen to an episode about La Cienega is if I tell him that we did Swamp Thing trivia at the end because he loves Swamp Thing. Um, but uh, in the randomly selected order of Jason, Nick, and Harry, um, and then going on a loop, uh, one at a time. So this will be a, a, a you know one you know one person per round, so to speak. Uh, I'm going to read a prompt related to Swamp Thing again. DC plant based humanoid uh, hero slash anti hero Swamp Thing, um, and you'll make a determination just if if it's true or false. That's all. You know, you can fifty fifty shot at getting it right. Um, you just say whether it's true or false. If you're correct, you'll get a point. And the person with the most points at the end is going to win. Y- you know how game shows work. Um, as always, trivia mafia rules apply here. So use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, we're going to start, uh, like I said, with Jason. And so uh, starting Jason from the beginning of Swamp Thing's trajectory, um, true or false, Swamp Thing's first comic book appearance was in July 1971. Does that sound uh, about right to you based on on your knowledge of Swamp Thing up to this recording? Um, true or false? Pretty minimal exposure so far to Swamp Thing. Uh, but I'll say true because it feels like something that I think it was, was it Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman? I forget. Who plucked it out and must have like made a whole myth about it. I'm going to say true 71 because uh, I don't know comics. Sure. Hey, that's fair. That's why we're here uh, to learn about comics. Um, and that is true. Uh, July 1971, um, House of Secrets uh, was the sort of comic arc. Uh, um, issue number 92, House of Secrets was the DC sort of like horror anthology series. And it evidently, um, it's most famous for debuting Swamp Thing. So it has that going for it. But yeah, July wow. 1971 um, is when Swamp Thing uh, first made its appearance. So yeah. Um, Point for Jason and hey again we're all, we're all learning a, a little fun something. Uh, next, I'll I'll pivot to Nick. Uh, now, Nick, uh, we gotta again in learning about Swamp Thing's origins, we need to get a sense of what sort of powers Swamp Thing has. And so, um, among other things, Swamp Thing's powers include true or false, super strength, and the ability to control any form of plant life. Does that does that sound about accurate to you? Again, based on your mileage with Swamp Thing up to this point, or, or does that sound like um, baloney? That's well, you know, I mean, if I had to, I'm not terribly familiar with the uh, intricacies of Swamp Thing nor his powers, but if I had to hazard a guess, I would say that would probably be true alongside his ability to throw human shit at his enemies. <laughs> nice. Wow. Somebody here has read a comic book. Um, yeah, that that is true. Yeah. So those are, I think, from what I can glean, rather the the biggest umbrella powers is uh or that he has or superhero strength or superhero strength super strength superhuman strength there we go and then the ability to control plant life um kind of getting more into specifics he can regenerate body parts and he can kind of uh, fluctuate his size again just based on um you know organic earth material and so yeah shaping up to be kind of a of a bit of a fun guy um we got on our hands here this this swamp thing um so point uh point for nick uh harry we're gonna move to you now swamp thing uh, he arguably achieved uh, peak popularity while being overseen by true or false Harry, uh, Watchmen and V for Vendetta author Alan Moore. Is that true or false? I believe that is true. 
It is. Um, I, I I cringed a little bit when, when Jason w- w- yeah decided to be you know a William Wikipedia over well, here. Well, listen, and rattle off, I'm a podcast uh, host guy. I got to talk. To be fair, that made me less sure because I remember it was Alan Moore, sure. but he said Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore, and I was like, oh, uh, was like, maybe Neil Gaiman did there? do something with Swamp Thing, but uh, right. so yeah. Hey, that's fair. But yeah, it, it's true. Uh, there was a comic book run apparently during the mid 80s that um, was handled by Moore and two other writers, Stephen Bissett and John Tottleben, that uh, yeah, was extremely successful. So hey, you know what? Uh, three, we're three for three so far, and we're learning so much. Y'all thought this was going to be an unmitigated disaster, but look at us now. Um, we're a third of the way through. It's going to be um, three uh, prompts a piece for everybody. So we're going to head back up to Jason. Now, Jason, um, we're going to be getting into into the weeds of Swamp Thing, um, if you want to think of it that way. Um, but Jason, true or false, canonically, there have been only two Swamp Things. Ooh, um, gosh, what a question. I'm going to say that's false. It sounds like if he had the power to control many plants, they would probably propagate more than just twice. I'll say false. Propagate. Okay. All right. Maybe uh, there's a swamp, swamp thing, thing in I'm, all of us. I'm saying the Swamp Thing books. I'm really glad we allowed the runway for both of you to say those things. Uh, it is indeed false. So um, in an attempt to connect the original uh, one-off Swamp Thing story, again, from issue number 92 of House of Secrets, if we remember from a few minutes ago, to connect that to what became sort of the main Swamp Thing canon. Alan Moore, at some point along the line, um, asserted that there had been dozens, perhaps even hundreds of Swamp Things since the dawn of humanity. Um, and I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but I wish it was. Um, so maybe, maybe more of like a Green Lantern situation where there are just like shitloads of them. Although I guess the Green Lanterns all exist simultaneously at the same time. Not the best metaphor. Um, but all that is to say, we're not going to talk about that anymore. Um, it, it, yeah, there, there have been a multitude of swamp things throughout time and space and existence. And so, yeah. Um, good for everybody to know. Nick, moving back to you now, uh, all the, um, all these versions of Swamp Thing, uh, the Swamp Thing creature that that we're we're talking about, um, they they were designated defenders. Um, I don't know if y'all know this. Designated defenders of an elemental community, and that community, true or false, is called the Parliament of Trees. The Parliament of Trees is that for real or is it not for real? I don't know if it's recognized in the United Nations, but I believe that's true. <laughs> Um, yeah, eat your heart out, UN. Um, it is true. It's, yeah, the community, the Parliament of Trees, um, it's a community that rules a dimension known as, and I quote, the green, uh, which connects all plant life on Earth. And it was about, th- at this point during my um, diligent research that I decided Swamp Thing might be pretty cool. <laughs> it sounds pretty sweet. Um so yeah, shout outs, uh, shout outs to the Parliament of Trees and the Green, and shout outs to y'all. By the way, uh, five for five so far. Um, so no pressure, Harry. As we go to you for your second question, um, should be noted that the success of the Swamp Thing comics culminated into a 1982 film adaptation, um, which starred true or false Richard Bamer, who played Ben Horn on Twin Peaks. Did he? Did he? portray uh the titular swamp thing or is uh, am i misleading you you're probably misleading me but for whatever reason that really rings true to me i'm gonna say true harry is Is gonna say true is it his brother is it the mm, okay go ahead 
it is it is not Richard Beamer. It is another Twin Peaks actor. And so the the Twin Peaks star who portrayed the character Alec Holland, who at, at least in this version of the film, and also I think is probably the primary one in the comics, he went on to become Swamp Thing, is portrayed by none other than Ray Wise. Whoa. Who is, L- L- Leland Palmer, uh, unless I'm fucking that Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, that's correct. Amazing. Nice. Wow. wow. We we talked about Lynch with Martell, and now we're talking about Lynch with Swamp Thing. It all connects. It's like we're part of the green. Yeah, <laughs> cinematic podrillels. Um, and I was honestly thinking about worse. you know Black Widow and the superhero you know thread that we were going on too. So this whole Whoa. this I love the cohesion of this episode, guys. Me too. This is an <laughs> exemplary episode. <laughs> Again, pound for pound, Swamp Thing, Swamp Love might be the most successful segment that we've done. And it's not I'm, even over yet. I'm we've hearing got that it's one the most successful segment of Cody's Noties of all time. 188 yeah. episodes later, we finally have a most a, a, a clear leader. Yeah, I'm just looking at a poll that I, I threw on Twitter right now, and <laughs> its ratings are, are through the roof. It's it's unbelievable. Um, we do have one last round to get to. Um, two points, Jason. Two points, Nick. One point, Harry. I'm I, for all intents and purposes, Swamp Thing is going to be the winner of this by the end. Just not to to give it away, but um, Jason, your last question, rather your I guess last uh, assertion. So this Swamp Thing film adaptation again, 1982, true or false? Uh, it was a surprise hit. Was that the case or was it not? Ah, uh, my my victory over Nick is riding on this. A potential victory over Nick is riding on this. So this means a lot. Given I've never heard that there was a film adaptation, I'm going to say it was not a, a surprise hit. So you're, you're going with false. I'm going with false. Uh, it was indeed false. So <sighs> um, uh, upon its release in February 1982, and I what got me down this is I was originally just going to look up like box office. And the box office was very difficult to find, um, even like a ballpark number four um the reason for that is because the movie underperformed so badly that according to um audio commentary on some blu-ray that he did um the film's director wes craven uh, wes craven directed what? swamp thing 1982 um uh, according to to his own from thine own mouth uh he uh, it was such a big disaster that he didn't work for two years after the fact he had to live off his savings and he ultimately lost his home that holy is, shit as as legend goes that is that is the what swamp, happened the swamp thing giveth and the swamp thing taketh away <laughs> that's uh, that is the swamp thing slogan um uh, man we should read those comics uh nick your last question um or, or last assertion or uh, you know thing to noodle over uh, so Wes craven true or false he did not direct uh following this movie he did not direct another financial success until scream in 1996 is that uh true or false Oh gosh, that's a uh... okay. So I I didn't know Wes Craven actually did the Swamp Thing. Um, I'm going to say that because Swamp Thing was 1983, 1982, uh, 1982. Okay, okay, that is not true because I feel 1984 was when he did A Nightmare on Elm Street. Ooh. You nice. read me like a poem. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street was directed by Wes Craven, released in 1984, and it was a big success. Uh, it had a budget of about a million dollars, domestic box office of about $25 million. And folks, that's how you get a franchise. Um, sorry, Swamp Thing, but uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street did it did it better. So yes, correct on that. Um, 
Jason and Nick ran the gauntlet. Um, there we go. Uh, three for three. Uh, we've got one more question here, perhaps the most important um, consideration of all as we pivot to Harry for our, our final one. Um, the character John Constantine, who Keanu Reeves played in a movie in, I believe, 2005. Uh, true or false, Harry? Uh, John Constantine as a character debuted in a Swamp Thing comic. I believe that's true. I Oh, man, it might be a dude. I know he debuted in another dude's comic, like in another big comic, uh, but I might not have been, it might have been like Blade or something. Um, I wasn't Blade. I'll say true. I'm going to go with true. I believe in the Swamp Thing. Harry believes Hashtag in the Swamp Thing. I believe thing. in the Swamp Thing. <laughs> Uh, Harry believes in the Swamp Thing. Uh, it was true, and so I really just shoved this in at the end because there were a few things that made me smile as I was, again, like cruising through Wikipedia. So first, the DC Comics occult investigator character guy, uh, John Constantine, he did make his official debut in 1985 with um, issue 37 of the saga of the Swamp Thing, that sort of comic run. Um, if you're listening to this and happen to know what that is, there you go. Um, uh, according to Moore, um, to Alan Moore, the character... John Constantine mostly owes his existence uh, existence to the fact that the other two guys, uh, Bissett and Tottleben, wanted to draw a character who looked like Sting, um, because apparently he <laughs> looks like Sting, um, so, and not Keanu Reeves, who we all famously know him as following the 2005 film, which rules. Um, the second thing, uh, apparently in a different comic, uh, Swamp Thing regenerated uh, himself out of some of John Constantine's tobacco because that's like his character thing is that he smokes a lot um, and like gets really sick because of it. And so, yeah, I don't know. Another drop in the bucket for <laughs> how, how rad the shit sounds. But um, yeah, just wanted to float that out at the end. Um, a rousingly good uh, game from everybody. Um, you know, uh, Jason and Nick uh, tied at the top of three. Harry brought up uh, brought up the... Uh, Close behind was I was going <laughs> to say bring up the rear, but I don't know. He, he missed one question. We only did three questions a piece. I've been talking a lot. This has been Swamp Love. Thank you for learning about Swamp Thing. Um, hashtag I believe in I believe Swamp Thing. We'll hash that out later. Thank thank you so much, Cody, for teaching us so much about the Swamp Thing. I hope Cody's dad is happy with that segment. Uh, I will have it timestamped in case you want to skip straight straight to it and just everything else you can ignore completely it sounds like you're not going to have a good time anyway no. but if you're still listening no, to this Cody's dad, dad absolutely has to watch La Siena guy <laughs> if he wants to listen to the Swamp Thing <laughs> trivia that's gotta it's gotta happen <laughs> Uh, I would, if I could make that happen, I would. Uh, but you know what I can make happen? A uh, nice, clean outro to this episode. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. Thank you so much for inspiring us to actually cover this movie. We weren't sure if we would with the Nick Cage series going on, but I'm really glad that we did. I'm really, really glad that we made time. I'm really glad that you uh, agreed to be on. So thanks once more. Uh, let people know where they can find you and stuff. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me on the show. I had a blast. And again, you can find... Me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of the usual suspects, uh, Cooey underscore at Cooey underscore Nick on Twitter, and then just Nick Cooey on Instagram. And, um, and you can find a few samples of some of my other writing on www.whatifcinema.org. Excellent. Uh, and look for links to all those things in the show notes. Nick, I'll be sending you, sending you an email for links to all those things so I don't forget. Uh, but check it out. Check all of that out. Check out uh, Lucretia Martel's films uh, wherever you can. Um, and go to the Trilons website for more programming information. I won't burden down the rest of this episode with leaving verbal links to digital links that I've already got in episodes uh, in the episode notes. But I will sign off by saying that this has been Trilove. Thank you so much for listening. Go to Trilon. 
twitter.com slash trylovepodcast for more from us. Go to twitter.com slash Cinema for more from the Tryland and tryland.org to get tickets and all those cool things you can give cinemas in your area. But just for this one, please. Um, my name is Jason Daphnis. Find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Great to meet you and talk to you. Um, see you and anybody else who might be listening to this episode at the Trilon at some point in the future. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, shout out to Swamp Thing. You can find me, Cody, not Swamp Thing, sorry, on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've been Swamp Thing, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. What a pig you turned out to be. Will someone answer the phone?